Welcome to In Conversation with Our Food Future, the podcast series that's following the creation of Canada's first circular food economy right here in Guelph, Wellington. I'm Barb Schwarzenschuber, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Office and host of this podcast series. On today's show, we're exploring sustainable agriculture practices. Activities such as manure and nutrient management and regenerative farming techniques are re-emerging in farming as important strategies if we are to realize a truly circular food system. Our guests all come from Wellington County and bring unique perspectives both from local government and quite literally from the field. So let's pull our chairs around the kitchen table and get the conversation started. I want to welcome Karen Chisholm, who is the Climate Change and Sustainability Manager for the County of Wellington. She has decades of experience working with multidisciplinary teams to solve big problems and transform our landscapes and communities. Justine Denard is the Smart Cities Project Manager for the County of Wellington. Her background as both an classical archaeologist and professional librarian combines nicely into her newfound passion for learning about all things soil. Mel Limus is a freelance agra environmental sociologist and co-founder of the Ontario Soil Network. Her family farms in the north part of Wellington County using cover crops and minimal till for soil health. Welcome to everybody today. I just want to start really dig, oh, that's a great pun, dig right in, (laughs) (laughs) unpacking the phrase regenerative agriculture. We're hearing it quite a bit these days. Um, What kinds of things, Justine, are considered to be regenerative agriculture? Thanks. We do hear that phrase a lot now. It's also sometimes called climate-friendly farming, and it's a whole lot of different approaches that are all focused on soil health, often stacked up and combined with one another. Uh, Some of the activities on the farm that can be called regenerative agriculture activities include uh, low or no-till farming, where you're not churning up the soil quite so often, Uh, cover cropping, where you're adding another layer of growth and keeping your fields green between crops, Um, There's a lot of intention also around which crops combine as cover crops in order to fix the nutrients for your soil. Rotational grazing is also a really big part. So you're bringing the natural animal cycle into your soil cycle. Uh, You're letting the animals uh, deposit right onto your fields um, and adding to your soil health that way. Rotational crops are used so that you're um, cycling through different kinds of plants and adding diversity to your fields. Um, Making sure that you don't compact the soil too tightly, keeping space for air and water through it by um, either driving over your fields in uh, fewer passes or using softened tires. There are lots of different approaches. And watching um, soil erosion, making sure that you're doing what's needed to protect against erosion of soils. So there are lots of different things often used in combination. And what's really nice is that it can be a low-tech or a high-tech approach. You can assess your fields manually by how the field, um, how the soil looks and feels and deals with water after a rain, heavy rainfall and how much you, you know about 
how your soil is performing. But you can also take a really high-tech approach and use the advanced precision agronomy tools to, to map so carefully with um, uh, flyover, um, I want to call them droids, drones, <laughs> drones, <laughs> and, and, and make all these really high-tech maps that tell you exactly where to put your input so nothing is wasted. Um, and, and that's what's brings it back into the circular economy discussion because we're not wasting anything. We're, we're using the natural cycles of plants and animals. And if we're applying fertilizers, it's only exactly enough. That's great. And, you know, it does feel a little bit like back to the future and uh, droids. Um, but, <laughs> but Mel, I just, you know, we often hear the circular economy is already something, circularity uh, is already something that, that farmers have been doing forever. And, and regenerative agriculture, uh, certainly farmers care about their soil and, and it's already happening in fields. And many local farmers are moving towards um, climate-friendly farming using these regenerative agriculture practices. Is it is it back to the future or um, Justine talked about, you know, there are some high-tech tools that help, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about, about what's happening out, out there. And is this just something we've rediscovered or is there something new about this? Oh, that is a good question. I, I do kind of feel like historically it kind of goes up and down. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with uh, the resources that farmers have, I believe. But um, and it really, I love uh, I loved your breakdown, uh, Justine. And um, and you, if you look around, driving around the back roads that I see all the time, it doesn't even look that different. Like if you watch Kiss the Ground and some other sort of documentaries about regenerative agriculture, they always have these happy music and it's very <laughs> sunny. And um, but actually. It might not even look that different than big, bad farming. I'm using air quotes here, but because squishy tires, you can't really see they, right. Um, actually you can see them. They look like they've been deflated, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but it's, and you know, like farming with no till or strip till, it just looks, it looks kind of ugly. Like it doesn't have these clean rows. And so, um, yeah, it, it looks different. Um, and it kind of just goes in and out depending on what resources farmers have. And to, yeah, to speak about droids, um, <laughs> I do think there is a lot of technology coming down the pipes like um, with swarm technology using very tiny machines to do mm. the planting that will look like R2-D2 uh, going up and down the fields to do some of that field work, but th there's no compa compaction there. They can do it without chemicals. So back to the future and back again, and, and yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna look different and also just look the same. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, some of the big um, food uh, producers and retailers, General Mills, Danon, Kellogg and others have started to say to their supply chains, we want you to start um, using regenerative agriculture practices. So I imagine that's helping the spread of these kinds of approaches, but are there other ways that um, that these approaches are are sort of moving across the producer community? Mel, yeah, I'd love to speak to that. Um, what I see is, uh, yeah, there's many ways that it spreads, um, but it, it's always it's not always just a one way 
spread, right? Like uh, you can mm-hmm. unadopt these practices just as easily as you can adopt them. Like farmers are making the best decision every year and every year is different as we know. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I see farmers taking advantage of um, the rural water quality programs, incentive programs um, that help kind of offset some of the costs of doing this. I think it's great because if they're improving water quality, you're paying farmers for a service. So farmers are good with that, but I see that farmers really, it's catching on where they can see other farmers using it. So uh, I work with the Ontario Soil Network, which is all about connecting farmers with each other to share their experiences. Um, we've even got a, a soil road trip app that'll that'll take you right to some of these fields that are that are using some of these practices. So you can see them firsthand because I think that's really important to um, to the to the spread of it. But but more important is that they have to see these fields as successful because if they look like Ultimately, if we are talking climate friendly and regenerative agriculture, the crops have to do better, right? They're they're going to be more uh, drought tolerant and to, to heat mm-hmm. stress. Um, and so if the fields don't succeed, then that is the worst way to get this to spread. So that's why we need the research. That's why we need, um, yeah, all that kind of support. So uh, and ultimately, I think there's a market incentive too. Um, would be would be really great because because farmers. Um, would always take a market incentive and a premium over a government incentive, I think. Yeah, and I I want to come back to that. Um, you know, uh, the the sort of the income of farmers and how to how to support it and improve it and the market incentive. But um, you brought up a, a climate friendly and you know mitigating climate impacts, Karen. Producers are, you know, certainly part of the solution for addressing climate impacts. And the county recently drafted a climate change mitigation plan, which I think is really fascinating to see that coming from the county with a focus on agriculture um, as well as other things. Can you speak about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Uh, The future focused plan is the climate change mitigation plan for the county of Wellington. Um, It was endorsed by our county council in February of this year, um, and it was completed through a grant through Federation of Canadian Municipalities, um, which was a very exciting grant to receive. Um, The report itself is in um, generally in three phases. We have an inventory on greenhouse gases. We have target setting uh, to reduce emissions. Uh, So for the county, uh, we're looking at a 6% reduction by 2030. And then we have recommended actions to achieve target. And uh, what we looked at were um, four sections, transportation and buildings, which really focused on fossil greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels. And then we also looked at agriculture and solid waste, which um, where the the emissions come from biogenic or biologically uh, created emissions. And by separating out the biologic uh, or the biogenic emissions, we can better operate identify opportunities for sequestration and opportunities to use emissions as a resource. Uh, so getting back to Justine's point about this circularity. And these two things are really um, um, somewhat unique for farmers um, and an opportunity for them to um, contribute in a positive way um, with climate action. 
So for the agriculture piece specifically, we looked at enteric fermentation, which is a byproduct of livestock livestock digestion or cow burps. Um, and we looked at manure management, <laughs> soil management, and liming and urea application. So in that inventory, um, we estimate that the emissions from agriculture in the county is about 522,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So wow. it's, a, it's a big piece. It's a big piece of our overall community emissions. But there's a lot of challenges in that because of the way the calculations are done and some of the data that we um, have to use to, to put into to the formula to get um, to get those calculations done. And largely they're based on global emission factors and um, or national level data and not specific to what's happening in the county. And we know there's a lot of really great things happening in the county. We just don't have the data to say exactly how this impacts our emissions. Yeah, it's all about data, isn't it? To sort of make the right next steps and and support the right kinds of things moving forward. And one of the things that we've done in our food future project is to undertake a food and waste flow analysis. So looking at how, where and how food flows through the region and what are the waste sort of hotspots. And it's, it's been challenging to get accurate local data. And it's sounding to me like the same same kind of thing is a challenge for regenerative agriculture and for understanding the, you know, how we measure the impact on reducing um, GHGs. Um, Justine, do you want to weigh in on that? Because I, I think it's going to be key to the future um, around how we move to a circular uh, food-based uh, regional system. Thanks. Yeah, it is a big challenge for us because, as Karen says and you pointed out, um, right now we're using global data, but we know we have local data to discover. Um, Things like the food waste flow analysis and the climate change mitigation plan give us a really good roadmap. And what that does is lets us know which slices are missing and where we now have to do our work of finding the local stories and the local practices. Um, regenerative agriculture is challenging because soils will behave differently in different geologies and climates and depending on which practices you've used in the past. So we've got a lot of things to look closely at. Um, but it's exciting when you do find the pockets of local data. Like we know that um, in Canadian dairy, a liter of Canadian milk has a CO2 equivalent that's less than half of the global average. And that's just coming from practices, um, the way the animals move around the land, the kinds of sizes of herds, um, mm -hmm. the, the technology we use. So there's a lot to learn and it's going to be really exciting now to do the work of diving in. It's also very much a part of people's awareness because um, the carbon market is emerging and um, even the at the federal level we're watching how soil carbon sequestration becomes part of that bigger story. Um, so as we learn our local data and we match that up with how our farmers can be uh, carbon heroes, we have a lot of exciting work ahead of us. <laughs> That's great to hear. And and I would love if we could um, take a few minutes and give some examples of um, farmers that are moving in this direction and um, and sort of coming back to that idea of market incentives and and how how to be a sustainable, you know, family to midsize farm in in our area. Mel, do you do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. There's um, 
oh, where to begin? <laughs> um, <laughs> like Wellington County has um, has always had well a higher proportion of livestock and dairy farms, uh, which is great for the soil already, right? And um, but also, uh, I hope this is kosher to talk about. But like it, Elora is recycling its biosolids program, and uh, mm-hmm. farmers are farmers are a part of that, and they're buying into that. They're uh, or if they don't have livestock, they're buying manure, they're buying compost and our other organic amendments. Um, uh, CNM Seeds up in the north part of the county has been doing wheat uh, development all along. So that's we've got a greater crop diversity in Wellington County, um, I'd say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, and, and cover crops, you see them more and more every year after after wheat. Like so wheat is the best thing because it's winter wheat, it covers the soil in the spring, and then you get a cover crop after the wheat, and that's another um, potential winter that's covered um, in, in, a, in, a, in a, a three-way rotation. So, so yeah, there's lots, lots of good things going on around the county, um, but to, uh, to some market incentive, I don't know where to begin there. <laughs> Maybe that's it, for it, another, it pretty complicated. another yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think so, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mel. Um, I I like to wrap up these podcasts by by asking our guests uh, a a bit of a personal question. And it's because we view this work certainly as we do this work as professionals, but we also have a personal passion and um, we also bring our own unique experiences and relationships with food and the land. So I want to wrap up by asking each of you to just in, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, share about a memorable meal, family or cultural tradition, or your connection to the land and growing food that's meaningful to you. And and uh, just reflect a bit on what of that experience do you think you're bringing with you uh, to the work and the passion for reimagining a better food system? I'm going to start with uh, Justine. Uh Thanks. I I grew up with, as a gardening family, not a farming family, so my experience is smaller. But um, as a kid, I remember always having homemade things, things from the garden. We made our own pickles, our cookies, our jams, that kind of thing. And it was, to be honest, not just a health choice, but a budgetary choice. We were tight on cash a lot of years. Um, as a parent, I was an urban parent, so I couldn't do it on the same scale. And I became very appreciative of our farmer's markets that let me reproduce that. And then when we became a double income working family, time slipped away. And I'm even more appreciative of connecting with um, smaller grocery stores or farm gate sales or programs like Taste Real that um, already organize and celebrate local food and let me access it so easily. Um, I feel really fortunate to live in our region because we're just surrounded by good things. Great. Karen, what about you? Yeah, I was nodding as Justine was talking because I grew up in a gardening family as well in Mississauga and I had an uncle who had a farm up in Dundalk. So I was quite close to the animals and and spent quite a bit of time up there. So I feel like it's just a part of how I grew up is being connected to um, to agriculture and to the earth. And um, but as, as far as food goes and that family meal, I I cherish our handed down implements from 
my grandmothers and great grandmothers and and we cook together as a family and I'm teaching my children you know they like they love baking and and so do I I like eating baking so it works very well but it's an opportunity to share family recipes and um talk about you know these these bowls or these spoons or or whatever you have that has been handed down it's a really a great way to connect to um generations past and um uh, and then beyond that, uh, my husband grew up in Palmerston or Palmerston, if you're local. <laughs> and uh, we, and so, uh, yeah, very just very connected to the county itself and, you know, going out to various farms and farm stands to get corn, like Holesworth corn or, or wherever. And, uh, you know, having the competition of whose corn is best or, <laughs> or what have you, having big, uh, you know, uh, corn eat fests and what have you. So, yeah, just very very connected through farm markets and everything. It's just part of how, how we've been, I've been brought up and how my kids are now being raised as well. Thank you. And Mel. Well, I, I could echo the same sentiments, but I'll also take the opportunity to share when I, I did a summer working um, in an organic uh, community supported agriculture farm. And I've never worked so hard in my life. And it got me thinking like, Regenerative agriculture is so important that we can't afford to be naive about it, that mm. it's just going to happen from, it's just going to happen. That is, I never made so little and worked so hard in my life. And if that is what, it, this needs to be a socially just system as well, um, and economically and environmentally. So that to me, yes, there was some moments where all I ate was from that garden, but I couldn't even move my hands <laughs> at that time with repetitive strain injury. So um, that really taught me is that I is let's let's work with big agriculture to it's all part of the story. We're going to need mechanization <laughs> to uh, to to do this. Um, so yeah, that would be my kind of memory. <laughs> I think that's a that's a lovely way to end. It really is it really is a bigger story about our economy and about our food system. So thank you very much, Justine, Karen, and Mel. This was a great conversation today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Barb Schwartzentuber, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Office and host of In Conversation with Our Food Future. Thanks for joining me. And if you have ideas for a show or comments, you can email us at foodfuture@wealth.ca. Until next time, take care and let's keep the conversation going on foodfuture.ca.